Hello, New Haven, and welcome back to WNHHLP 103.5 FM New Haven. This is Arts Respond, a collaboration between WNHH and the Arts Council of Greater New Haven. And I am very excited to be here with Adam Matlock. Adam wears many, many hats. You are a musician. You're uh, also a composer. You're also a, an environmentalist. Uh, you do a yeah. lot. <laughs> I do, yes. You do, you do a lot. And um, I'm. you're just a very bright spot in this, what we're recording on a very dreary morning. So, um, so welcome. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Adam, uh, we have, you've been on, I think you were on Kitchen Sink, which was the sort of the predecessor to Arts Respond, talking about food and music. So you've been on the radio with me before, but today we are talking about what Riot, um, an opera that is, can I say it's forthcoming from you? It's sort of yeah. like in the world. It, yes, it is It is sort of half one foot in, one foot out, sort yeah. of, I think that's a fair way to say it, yeah. Yeah, yeah, um, which is an opera about what many now recognize as the Tulsa Race Massacre, but we will get into why the word riot is in the title and the words massacre, riot, and rebellion all appear in the first scene of the first act, or maybe the second scene of the first act. One, one, one yeah. of them, for sure, yeah. One, probably, one yeah. of the two. So so let's get right into it. And I'm wondering if you can take the um, listeners back to 2012 when you saw a post pop up, I think it was on Tumblr, right? Cor correct, yeah. So that's dating dating myself for sure uh, in terms of the, the particular uh, platform of social media. But um, yeah, I think, uh, you know, so at, at that time, um, uh, yeah, I guess one of the, that, that was sort of like one of my kind of main uses of social media, I think was, uh, you know, was uh, like getting really sort of, um, uh, kind of a, a sense of, of um, you know, history and kind of alternative scholarship. I think at the time, a lot of the people that I was connected to on that platform, you know, besides people who were sort of in various, uh, you know, fans of various, uh, you know, IPs that I was also a, a fan of and stuff were, you know, were folks who were sort of like uh, historians who were working on, uh, you know, kind of uh, sort of academic and non-academic um, kind of, you know, historical research, uh, you know, there's, uh, you know, and a lot of it had to do with sort of, um, <clears throat> sort of correcting previous notions about racial justice and, uh, you know, and sort of like the, the presence of uh, people of color in, you know, sort of uh, Western art history and that sort of thing. Um, and so, yeah, you know, just by, by uh, the, the fact of being connected to all these people, um, you know, uh, that's one of the things that uh, that platform was really good for, um, you know, was sort of the, the reblog, right? And so, you know, if someone made a sort of historical post and, you know, put a certain amount of research into it, um, it was fairly easy to share it, right? And, and there was no character limit as there is on Twitter, right? So um, you could get into a lot of really good, um, you know, of, of detail really. And, and uh, you know, so so I it, the, the main thing that was sort of circulating was an image and it was just a single image with some text on it um, that showed one of the historical photos um, of the, uh, you know, of the Greenwood district, I think sometime uh, shortly after, you know, sort of in the aftermath um, uh, of these events, which happened, you know, mostly in the span of two days, uh, you know, in uh, 1921. And, 
you know, and it talked a little bit about it and, uh, but it, you know, it wasn't a huge amount of detail, but like sort of as it spread, you know, people were like, oh, I know about this. Let's, you know, let's add on some more info to it. Um, let's give some more context, right? Talking a little bit more about sort of what led, um, uh, yeah, sort of, uh, you know, kind of basically the, the events that kind of spitballed into, into this happening, you know, and it really did kind of erupt in a, um, uh, you know, in a very sudden fashion, but, uh, you know, it didn't erupt out of nowhere, right? So I think there was a, you know, certainly a lot of context that, um, that sort of led to the, the area uh, being primed for this sort of thing to happen, right? Um, and, you know, I, uh, yeah, so I guess, you know, that, well, one, one thing sort of led to another, I, saw this post a couple of times, you know, just because it, you know, that people would keep sort of resharing it and um, occasionally it would have, you know, sort of new layers of info in. And at some point that, that led me to the Wikipedia page, which uh, was actually, I think, quite detailed at the time, um, uh, you know, and, and had a pretty, um, I would say a pretty narrative account of, you know, of sort of what happened. And I think that's not an accident, right? I think that, you know, sort of like everything that we know uh, that we knew even then about it, you know, I think it was like, uh, it was very uh, sort of, um, you know, it, it's, it seemed to unfold in a way that was very uh, kind of like, uh, like it was, it was a narrative already, right? Um, it was not just sort of like a collection of events that then people put a spin on, right? You know, the way it sort of um, unfolded out of, um, you know, a kind of like interpersonal interaction, right? And then, you know, sort of like spitball to include the entire district of the city and, you know, many um, people outside of it as well. Um, uh, you know, I think it, you know, it, it's, uh, you know, I, I think I, I described it as being dramatically primed in a sense, right? And, right. Um, you know, and it feels very tragic uh, the way it, the way it sort of unfolded because, you know, uh, but of course, you know, if you know, like much at all about the history of this country, right? It is not uh, an isolated incident in terms of uh, the, you know, the the sort of fear of like white femininity being sort of threatened by black masculinity to some right. degree. Um, and of course, that's a really complicated statement that needs a lot of unpacking too. Yeah. But um, awesome. yeah, yeah. Uh, but you know, but but uh, you know, historically, like that has been uh, a big driver for a lot of racist actions and policies in this country, um, and you know, and especially here, that seemed to be the case. So yeah. Um, so I I want to um, you know step back from it a little bit, and for sure. listeners who maybe are not familiar with the story of Greenwood. And, and I will say there are many Greenwoods across yeah. the United States, right? And yeah. I think that was one thing that really stayed with me. So uh, two weeks ago, you had a sort of a listening, I don't want to call it a listening party. Can I, cause that sounds really yeah. festive and like no yeah, one was like true. wearing birthday hats and eating popcorn and um, blowing on what, whatever they're called streamers or yeah yeah, right. or yeah. <laughs> right um it, it was um like a really contemplative event I think and but but a listening session and sort of listening and, and feedback to the first act but for folks who maybe haven't heard of the Tulsa race massacre the Greenwood massacre um can you take them a little bit through the inciting incident, because that was something that um, you know, I, had, I had heard this term while reporting, especially earlier this year, New Haven had its own Black Wall Street Festival, yep. and that was partly paying homage to Greenwood and to other um, sort of booming Black business districts that were self-sustaining in the first yep. half of the 20th century. 
Um, but I think a lot of folks don't actually know about the inciting incident behind this and what it says about how quickly an event can spiral. And, and also I wanna get into talking about the complicity of, of the media as a right-wing institution, but we can save that for a little later. Sure. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, I think the, you know, what we understand to be sort of the, the catalyst for this event was, uh, you know, it was two people in an elevator. Right. Um, and so uh, the, the, the man was uh, Dick Rowland. Uh, I, 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 that's my understanding of the pronunciation of his name. He was also known as Diamond Dick. Um, and he was a shoeshine in, in the area, you know, in, in Greenwood. Um, and uh, you know, so, so I think that, uh, basically like, even though the area was, uh, you know, had its own sort of like booming black business di district, there was still, you know, active segregation. There was still, you know, some Jim Crow laws in effect. Um, and so, uh, you know, what we understand is that, uh, he was not able to use the bathroom anywhere, you know, just anywhere like, uh, as, uh, as we you know understand bathrooms were, were segregated um, as a result of this and um, and so you know there was an arrangement with the owner of a nearby building which, uh, the Drexel building and um, and he you know the the boot blacks are, were able to um, use the bathroom there uh, and so on one day he went uh, to go and use the restroom and there was uh, a young white woman uh, who was operating the elevator her name was Sarah Page and um, uh, you know, and once the door shut, we, we really don't know what happened, right? Um, but uh, the the understanding, at the very least, is that um, you know he was accused of uh, assaulting her uh, in that elevator, um, and. <clears throat> once that accusation sort of spread around, uh, you know, uh, uh, he uh, was arrested, right? And um, oftentimes there, uh, you know, was a history of sort of complicity between the uh, law enforcement institutions and, uh, you know, and white supremacists, clans, you know, clans people or other, other strains of white supremacists um, who would participate in the extrajudicial murders of black men who were accused of such things. Um, and, you know, whether it was lynching or something else, right? Um, and there was a history of that in Oklahoma as much as there was, you know, all across the American the Southeast um, and other places too. So, um, yeah, and so basically like this accusation spread around, uh, uh, Dick Rowland was arrested. Um, it was uh, pretty, pretty well believed that, um, you know, a mob was coming to sort of take him out of the jail and, you know, to kind of surreptitiously um, lynch him, uh, as we understand. Um, and, uh, you know, but at that at that point, there that had happened enough times in recent memory um, for the people of Tulsa, for you know people who were just aware of what was going on in the area, um, that people really were just not going to let it happen. Like the black people who lived in Greenwood, many of whom were veterans, many of whom had fought for the country in World War One, uh, and then come back to Jim Crow and come back, you know, to to relative prosperity in Greenwood, but still, you know, being constantly reminded of their place. Um, in, in American society, um, you know, had sort of decided that that, that that just didn't sit with them. And so what they were going to do is arm themselves as uh, and, uh, you know, prevent it from happening at, you know, at all costs. Um, 
And so, yeah, basically uh, it, this uh, sort of led to uh, ultimately, uh, you know, a kind of intense standoff and confrontation um, at uh, the police station, you know, where people were coming to make sure that um, Dick Rowland was not going to be, um, you know, like taken out of the jail while another mob showed up to sort of uh, make that happen. Um, and so, yeah, these two large groups of people, you know, an incredible amount of tension, you know, all of this sort of loaded stuff that happened. And, you know, it's our, our, our we don't really know how the conflict actually went from the simmer to the boil in that, in that way. But, um, you know, it's, it's believed that a gun went off and um, in, with that level of tension, you know, uh, it, it turned into, um, you know, kind of a battle basically. Um, and, uh, you know, and then at that point, of course, the historical record becomes a lot hazier, right? Because, uh, uh, you know, it was uh, really kind of a crisis situation. And so what we have is, um, you know, we have a, an official account, we have um, what the newspapers were reporting, um, some of which were black owned newspapers, um, you know, who obviously were uh, invested in uh, representing what they felt was, was uh, the truth, which was not being reported by other newspapers, which were um, you know, we're kind of perpetuating the narrative of Dick Rowland's assault of Sarah Page and, um, you know, and sort of like or sort of bandying that about as a justification for anything that happened, you know. Um, and uh, yeah, so we, you know, we see a lot of these things. Uh, again, you know, there, there are sort of patterns of this happening. So, um, but, you know, and then in within sort of 24 to 36 hours, like, you know, the, the whole Greenwood area was raised, uh, you know, it was like largely burned to the ground, a lot of homes, a lot of businesses, et cetera. So. And people died. I mean, that, that is the, and not, not that the loss of, pro I, the loss of property is deeply upsetting and mm -hmm. messed up. I'm not going to use a, a certain word because I don't want to get in trouble with the FCC. Um, but, but there was also the loss of human life. Correct. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I think that's, uh, although it's interesting that you say that, because I think that one of when I when it was first sort of introduced to me, um, you know, one of the things that made it stand out was not just the loss of life, because that was unfortunately pretty commonplace, but it was the fact that there, you know, there was like an economic foothold for Black Americans in this district, right? And that was completely wiped away within the span of 36 hours, you know? Um, so, so yeah, I mean, I think, you know, both, of, obviously, yes, both of them are, are um, you know, extremely significant parts, parts of this. Um, and I think that when I, I was introduced to it, and of course, you know, since being introduced to it, learning um, that it was more of a pattern and all that, um, uh, you know, that there, that, that it was a bit more sort of commonplace in terms of like there, that being a sort of white supremacist reaction to black Americans sort of gaining any kind of economic or political traction, um, and, you know, when just recently they had been enslaved, you know, like within within some people's lifetimes, you know. Um, so I think, yeah, there, yeah, that that was that was the thing that was emphasized as I was introduced uh, to this, you know, was the fact that, um, you know, there was the beginning of a chance to build something like generational wealth, which we now, I think, understand as being a, a pretty big part of the, the current uh, and ongoing racial disparities, you know, in this country. Um, and that was wiped away, you know. So I think that's that's a, a pretty crucial part of it as well. Yeah. So I, I do want to ask you where, like, where you are emotionally after writing the first and part of the, part of the second act, all of the second act? 
Uh, I have not. So the, the second act has not been written musically yet. The, the libretto is basically almost done, uh, you know, and that uh, that is being written by Brian Slattery, who also wrote the first act. Um, and, you know, we're going to go back and do do some revisions before the music gets uh, gets started. Um, but also, you know, I, I do plan to kind of revise some of the music for the first act. Um, just due to the the circumstances, you know, of not really being able to sort of convene an ensemble for uh, during the period when I was working on this. Um, so yeah, there's a, yeah. yeah. Um, and and shout out to Brian Slattery, who, in addition to being the arts editor at the New Haven Independent and a novelist, is just a really fabulous musician in his own right. And yes. we're lucky to have both of you on this. It I feel like there's star power. There a little bit, um, like introverted star power. Is that fair? Sure. Yeah, that seems that seems reasonable. <laughs> Is that fair? Um, but so okay, so I want to get into the process of um, writing hmm. itself because I think for a lot of listeners, they will hear a piece of music, hmm. but they don't really have a sense of how it got there. And so I'm wondering if you can take us lay people, you know, us plebs out there, uh, through the process of writing, and then. You know, specifically, you've talked a little bit about the fact that so um, you had a grant come through from the Bitsy Clark Fund for Artists in 2019. So at that point, you had been thinking about this event and talking about this event. And uh, and my understanding is writing a bit around this event for 12, 13, 14, 15, I, many years. Um, I don't do math. And <laughs> Um, but then, of course, we know what happens in 2020. Right. There, uh, there is sort of the parallel pandemics of white supremacy, which is not a new uh, pandemic or epidemic in this in this country, and then also COVID-19 at the same time. And and we're seeing both of those play out um, in in the first months of 2020. Yeah. Well, okay. Yeah. So I think so. Um... I can't remember who it was, but it, you know, at one point, I I read an interview with a with a living composer uh, who who said that you know almost every composition it feels like starting over again. Like you know when you when you begin something anew, um, and and I would say that this is the case for me more for you know things that I. <laughs> things where I'm wearing the sort of capital C composer hat as opposed to working as a songwriter or working as a, you know, like, you know, like an ambient artist or, or whatever, you know, because I do a lot of other other types of music besides this sort of like, you know, sort of uppercase composition. Um, and and that's a distinction I'm trying to work through in my head. But anyway, it still it still exists. Um, but yeah, was the, you know, is the the feeling of that, you know, it like I had written one opera before also with Brian Slattery as the librettist, um, you know, I've done other sort of longer form compositions. Um, but in, in many situations, like it took a long time to sort of figure out how to write the first note, how to sort of get a sense of um, what the, uh, you know, how, how to sort of musically set the scene, right? Um, and I'll say that, you know, I think the very, like the opening notes that happen in the, in the first act it would not have happened if I had not been like standing in a lake somewhere and like listening to the water lapping because like there was kind of a rhythm that came through just as a result of like motorboat wave or something like that. And, and that, you know, I just at some point it was like, well, oh, maybe this is something that, you know, sort of like gets a feeling of, uh, you know, of anxiety to some degree, like, you know, this, this sense of like this uneven rhythm, you know, kind of like hitting against the rocks or hitting against, you know, me as I was standing there. Um, 
And, you know, so that, that was a little bit of an inspiration for me, you know, and I think that um, as much as I can, you know, very clearly acknowledge certain musical sources and inspirations for, um, you know, for the work that I do, um, it, it has been really helpful to learn to kind of see music in non-musical things um, for the, you know, in terms of trying to, uh, um, yeah, just make the effort of, of capturing and, and conveying, you know, uh, certain, uh, certain things that, you know, are not sort of inherently musical, you know. Um, so, uh, and, you know, from there, I mean, it, you know, it was, uh, it was kind of a really long and slow process. I wrote a lot of sketches for the scenes on paper. Several of them uh, were discarded between, you know, the, like writing the initial notes and, and uh, 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 you know, the, the sort of draft that was presented on um, in November. Um, uh, and, you know, but, but yeah, a lot of it was just like trying to figure out um, things that sort of, uh, to me, sort of captured the, the sense of tension, right? Um, because it, you know, it was, it was that tension, despite the sort of flourishing of Greenwood, um, you know, it was that tension that sort of led to, to things escalating as quickly and as, uh, you know, uh, to, the, to, the, to the level that they did. Um, and so then for me, like figuring out, um, kind of a harmonic world like you know what, what what were the chords that I that I could just like sit down and play at my keyboard that seemed to sort of like convey um some sense of of uh of you know of tension uh in in that way um yeah without getting too too into the into the music theory stuff of it so I mean you can get wonky that's okay people have gotten wonky on the on the radio before we lo- we love we love that um we love a good nerding out but um yeah. And, and then, you know, talk me through also writing. Um, so at this listening session a couple of weeks ago, Noah Bloom, who is the current executive director at Neighborhood Music School, where you're also an educator and, and an instructor, um, said, you know, how did you get through writing this or, or something to that, um, like something along those lines? Mm-hmm. And you said, well, I, I took a lot of breaks. Yeah. Um, but this is heavy. Like this, this is very heavy. Um, and not only is this heavy, but you have lived experiences as, as a black person and a, a black man in America. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I, there is, I mean, there is a, I think the combination for me is that like, sometimes as an artist or as a, as a singer, uh, you know, especially that um, I can sometimes be so focused on the musical aspects of something that lyrics don't always come through for me. And there are songs that I have learned, you know, other people's songs that I've, um, you know, that I've learned where, you know, I've sung it a, you know, a dozen times or more, and it doesn't really hit me until the 13th time that like, you know, what it is I'm actually singing about, or like, you know, it just like, like, I think so much about like trying to navigate the musical aspects of it, um, that, you know, the, the meaning doesn't always sort of come through. And, and I think that, um, you know, in a, in that happened to, to me as, uh, you know, working with Brian's words in this case, right, that I, you know, I knew that sort of the story, like we had both read the same books, I knew, you know, kind of the, um, 
the overall arc of things. But then, you know, some of the words that he chose to, um, you know, to to sort of convey what was happening, um, you know, didn't click to me the first couple of times that I read the libretto, and you know, didn't click to me until um, certain points of, of revision when I was, you know, looking at, uh, you know, and still thinking very primarily about, you know how is this going to be sung, right? Is this going to be something that singers can easily convey? You know, is it within their voice ranges, that sort of thing? Um, and those are, you know, those are technical problems that if you ignore them, right, then you, you don't always end up with as effective a piece of music, but the lyrics are as, if not more important in terms of a historical work like this, because it's, uh, you know, they have a, um, you know, they need, they need to be audible, they need to be, you know, sort of singable, they need to, you know, be something that like where someone is singing them, you know, you don't um, sort of lose, uh, lose meaning to the, the sort of like poetry of the form. And that is one of the things that I'm really interested in as, you know, as a sort of uh, as a student of music is, you know, like where music and narrative sort of overlap in that way. It's something I think a lot about as a songwriter, you know, I think a lot about it as a listener. Um, and, you know, I think that is one, one thing that uh, sometimes modern opera does not always consider, right, is that, um, you know, I think that there, there is a, uh, without, you know, I, like, I, I don't, I'm not trying to put anybody on blast, but I think that there is like a sort of obsessiveness with the poetry of the words and with the poetry of the form that sometimes the meaning gets a little bit lost. Um, and, you know, I, and I think that it is, um, yeah, I don't know. So, I, so for me, anyway, it was important to like really think about not just am I writing like beautiful melodies for the singers to sing. And of course, that's a big part of, you know, of writing an opera that people actually want to perform, right? It's like, you know, is it something that singers enjoy doing, right? And, and so I was thinking about that. And, you know, I think that's, ultimately that that was what made it a little bit difficult right is that I was kind of planning for the posterity in some degree you know to some degree like it you know it, it was there was always this kind of filtration through a sense of like how am I going to make this um something that is possible to to realize with you know with other people with other singers with um you know with an ensemble um and uh and then you know so when when the when I um the, as the pandemic sort of uh, was continuing, I mean, it's it's ongoing, but like as it was sort of stretching on, and you know, realizing that the sort of initial period of the uh, of the grant um, would not allow me to, to you know to convene uh, an actual ensemble to uh, to do this, um, you know, we we sort of agreed that the best way to do it would be um, to create sort of an electronic score. Um, and then just you know have have uh, so we re recorded in Firehouse Twelve Studios, which um, in their in their room in uh, in Worcester Square, which is a very large room, so there was like enough space for um, singers to be you know pretty safely distant from one another, not facing each other, you know, not you know singing is is uh, definitely one of the riskier things as far as sort of like particle <laughs> um, the transmission and all that stuff. So, um, uh, but yeah, so I think you know then when we pivoted to sort of doing an electronic score, then I was able to kind of get a little bit away from that. Um, because it was, it was not, I wasn't sort of like caught up with the sort of, um, you know, the sort of the, the mundane concerns of, you know, how this was going to be realized, except for the aspects of conveying the text. So, yeah. And, you know, as far as I asked you this at the listening session too, but um, the composer, Joel Thompson, who New Haven is really lucky, at least in the moment to, um, you know, to like to have in 
in the in the city i don't know i'm thinking of the city as a living thing and that's weird anyway um but but talks about this um current and voracious appetite for trauma and specifically black trauma and the trauma of people of color that i think especially organizations which have historically been led by white people some of which are still led by white people um sort of since this moment in mid 2020, we're like, whoa, 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 we gotta, we gotta do something about this racism thing that has existed in, in the United States for over four centuries. And they, they sort of scramble. Um, And he has talked about the tension of producing work that he believes in and that he believes in um, sort of both the narrative and the musical aspects of, and then knowing that there are certain folks who will go and either commission that work or pay for that work or show up for that work because they want so badly to feel something. Mm-hmm. And I'm interested in knowing, you know, did did you feel that tension or is this something that you believe so deeply in sharing the history of? Because I think, Adam, you're right. You talked about how several people, many, many, many people still don't know about this history because it's yeah. not taught in their history classes. Yeah, um, I think I think um, Joel is extremely astute about that, um, you know, and I am not certain that I was aware of that the whole time that I was working on it. I think I started to sort of become aware of it. And, you know, really what <laughs> I mean, part of it was the fact that while I was working on it, you know, these protests, uh, uh, you know, that started, you know, sort of kicked off and in, uh, in response to, uh, to George Floyd's death, like the, that was a um, you know, that was ongoing. Like, you know, I was working on the second act, second and third acts, like during that summer, especially of, uh, um, of 2020. And it took, yeah, I mean, I think part of it was that, you know, being sort of still relatively isolated um, during that time, you know, I went out to a few of those protests myself, um, but, uh, you know, in New Haven, but, um, uh, you know, a lot of the time I was watching things that were happening in bigger cities in New York and Los Angeles, and especially in places where police were really, um, you know, uh, showing their, their true colors in a lot of ways, right, um, uh, in response to these protests, right, um, and that was, um, yeah, so I think that it was not exactly the, you know, the healthiest thing for, for me, but I, um, I think it also kind of fueled uh, to some degree, like the 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 way that I was writing about this and the way that I, um, uh, you know, was sort of feeling that it was not an isolated incident, right? Um, and, you know, I had always kind of understood that what I hoped for this opera to be was to, you know, to have a chance to sort of connect um, to every other situation that has happened like that since, you know, since, um, and I think that, uh, working with the stage as a medium has the chance to, you know, sort of deal with nonlinear time in a way that maybe film or, you know, or even just music on its own would not necessarily be able to do. Um, and I think that's, you know, that, like I, um, yeah, that's that to me is it was one of the reasons why it seemed like it had to be an opera um, and a staged opera was you know with that there would be the chance to sort of make some of those connections. But I I 100% agree that I think like you know even since 
like uh, Kendrick Lamar winning the Pulitzer Prize for composition, you know, for a, an album that was like pretty confessional. Like it, you know, it was not an album that made him look good all the time, right? Um, and you know, that was uh, uh, and I, you, regardless of how you feel about about him, like you know, what I saw immediately was in classical music circles a lot of people sort of clutching their pearls about the fact that you know, a, like a rap artist was like winning something that was you know historically one of the only venues for classical musicians to get recognized right but then if you looked at all the past Pulitzer Prize winners for composition like there was not a lot of engagement right it was just um you know and and I think there's um the classical music world is doing a reasonable amount of reckoning with that but as um as you say and as as Joel pointed out I think that like you know a lot of that comes in the form of like centering black pain centering you know even the poetic expressions of it right James Baldwin was like he wrote some of the most beautiful words to ever you know talk about pain and and it makes a lot of people feel a lot of things right and um uh and you know like does is his you know are his like short stories about that are you know not as directly focused on that or you know is his poetry that that focus on that is it as popular or is it as well known as the fire next this uh the fire next time or um you know any of the more you know kind of um direct um uh, essays where he's like talking about his own experiences with police brutality or things like that not as much right um and so, yeah, I think there, um, yeah, there's a, there's definitely some, something to think about there. And, you know, um, I, and, uh, you know, and I don't blame any, any black creative person for taking those opportunities um, because the opportunities are so rare and, you know, the, the uh, resources are so limited and there's so much competition for them. Uh, but I do feel that it is one of those situations where, uh, yeah, you can sort of like end up kind of trapped with that um, because uh, black creative people have so much more to say than about pain, right? As, and, you know, I think that, you know, if, like it's, it seems kind of uh, simplistic to just like do kind of one for one comparisons, but, but like, you know, I think when like white people, uh, artists like focus only on pain, right, they're kind of described as maudlin, right? So like, what is the difference, right? You know, it, like there's a, um, there's definitely something in the perspective there, right, that, um, you know, like, uh, that I think deserves uh, a closer look for sure. Yeah, yeah I, I think about um, how Madeline Syed in a panel discussion a couple of years ago. So um, she's not a black theater maker. She's an indigenous theater maker. And um, on a panel a couple of years ago, she got very frustrated and she said, I just want to write about clouds. Can yeah. someone commission me to write about clouds? And it, it was a, a really beautiful and, and vulnerable moment. And I, I go back to that a lot. Why, you know, why can't we also give people money to write about? Because the, the concentrated wealth is out there, but that is yeah. another whole show about um, capitalism and the nonprofit industrial complex. So in, in our last couple of minutes together, because I know you have a lesson and I want to be mindful of time. I want to ask you, Adam, you wear a lot of hats as a musician as well. So, so not just that capital C composer, but mm -hmm. also as a musician you know, what, what are some of the projects that are giving you real joy right now? And, and this can be one of them, like joy and trauma, you know, Dwayne Betts, who it, his poetry feels fitting in this discussion because he is an abolitionist. And I think this opera in many ways is an argument for abolition without ever having to explicitly say the word. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but he, but he talks about holding the light and the dark together. And and I think as a as an artist, yes, you can do that. Yeah, I think. Uh, I mean, I think that's a good. That's a very good point because, like, it, it, I think that when we get so caught up, I mean, this just the state of politis, politicization in this country right now, it, you know, is that people react to buzzwords, right? So if I were to say abolition, right, yeah, maybe this would be a much less popular piece or like, you know, it would have a much different reaction um, if it was making sort of explicit demands. And, you know, I would be remiss to, to point out that there is at the moment another work that I found out after I received the grant um, that is being composed sort of in response to, um, to the, the Greenwood Massacre um, by the composer Daniel Bernard Romain, who is, uh, you know, has a previous New Haven connection. I think he was a uh, composer in residence at um, the uh, at the NHSO. Did you know similar workshops uh, uh, along the lines of what, what Joel Thompson was doing? And he was commissioned by the Tulsa Opera um, to create a work uh, for this, and then was decommissioned for it. Um, you know, because his because it was uh, his language was seen as being too incendiary, um, and it's kind of unclear exactly what happened. You know, he sort of presented a version of what of what happened uh, before he deleted his Twitter account, which was probably the wisest move any creative could do at this point, um, just for their own mental health. But uh, you know, but so sort of he has a sort of a version of what happened that seems as though um, there was a particular line that uh, singers in the opera and uh, you know the opera um, sort of. Uh, like board itself um, objected to, um, which was you know like a you know pretty outright condemnation of uh, of America of an America that lets this sort of thing happen, um, and you know where this sort of thing is a regular event. So I know it's my understanding now that it's sort of like being turned into a kind of a video opera piece um, because the the support was withdrawn. Uh, you know, and I, again I don't know all the details of that, but. Um, so yeah, I think that like it one of the things that enables us to maybe avoid some of that politicization is the fact that you know that it's not just about the anger, right? I mean, like you know, if you want to actually understand, like I think this is one of the greatest things that art can do for us is enable us to sort of build empathy um, based on the fact that um, you know we are. Um, yeah, just, you know, that we're whole people that, you know, that like people who are not like us have the same feelings that we do, maybe not in response to the same things, right? But, you know, that like, there are moments not just of pain and of bitterness and of, you know, resentment and that, but also there are moments of joy, there are moments of, you know, just mild annoyance, there are moments, you know, there's just like, there's a whole range of things, right? Um, And so, yeah, I think like, being able to sort of uh, center the, the, real justified and very deserved anger within the context of the whole person, right, is what enables it to, you know, I, I, I dare say it, but, in, you know, it makes it like an easier pill to swallow for people because it's like, it's not just coming from like a creature of rage that you see no other humanity in, right, but it's coming from a fellow human being, right, and I think that like that is one of the things where m- all of my artistic experiences have led me to that uh, conclusion pretty much right that um, you know when you understand people sort of at at their level and not just from what you think it is that they understand um, 
that there are, um, you know, there's a real chance for empathy and, you know, an actual sort of bridge building. Um, and so to, to your question that, you know, of the, the other things that are sort of invigorating me, I mean, you know, I have all, uh, for pretty, pretty much as long as I've been a performer, I've been playing klezmer music, right, which is, you know, Jewish, uh, Jewish American and, you know, Eastern European Jewish folk music um, that, uh, you know, and I think that, you know, there is a pretty great history in this country, as much as there, you know, there is some tension, right? You know, there um, there is a pretty great history of Jewish and, and Black American sort of support in, you know, in response to sort of white supremacy, in response to, um, uh, you know, to power, you know, the just the powers that uh, would rather uh, both of us not exist, right? Um, and so that's a big part of it for me. I'm thinking about it a lot because, um, you know, the pianist Pete Sokolov just recently passed away. Um, he was a very important figure for a lot of Klezmer, um, you know, and I'm just, I'm spending a lot of time reminiscing. You know, I didn't know, I didn't really know him except for like, I met him once at a, at a Klezmer event, but, um, you know, that's, it's just like sent me down kind of like a really big memory hole of, you know, like people and experiences that, that were super important to me as, in my development as a musician. But, you know, also I do a lot of, um, you know, kind of, like fantasy oriented synthesizer music. Um, and, you know, that's, uh, I, uh, you know, previously applied for grants to kind of do that kind of stuff because I think that, um, and, and did not receive them, right? You know, and of course there's like, you know, I don't want to be like spend time sort of obsessing over that stuff, but, um, you know, it doesn't surprise me that the like submitting uh, an application for a grant based on a, you know, much more directly, you know, sort of political, uh, project, uh, you know, went over better than, you know, than me doing kind of nerdy stuff, right? Um, you know, where I, where I dress up in a cloak or a night outfit or something. So, um, you know, but, but that stuff is, is as important to me and just sort of my general ability to just kind of engage with the world without being a, you know, a terribly bitter person all the time, just because it's an outlet, right? Um, and, you know, and uh, yeah, I think like similarly being able to, to play with some of the bands that I played with, like, uh, you know, Dr. Catterwalls is probably the longest running band and we've been together in various forms for about 12 years now. And it's still fun just because it, you know, it gives us the chance to kind of like challenge each other and like bring in new stuff and, and, and all that. And, um, you know, and, and similarly, like, you know, free improvisation is, is one of the, you know, the kind of big sort of factors for me. Um, it was something that I wanted to be more of a part of this opera because I think there is a great tradition now, especially of Black American opera composers mm. utilizing improvisation um, as part of their their operatic language, and you know, and that the classical music world is now sort of able to handle that without freaking out because the players now are as well trained as they have ever been in terms of you know not just being able to sight read Brahms you know like at, at the drop of a hat, but um, you know that they can you know like have some experience playing music outside of that canon, and it enriches their experience sort of within the canon. Um, and I think, you know, that's, that's the sort of thing where, where this sort of like wearing of different hats for me as a composer, as a, you know, as a synth artist, as a, you know, as a side, side person, in a, you know, in bands and things like that. Um, uh, where, yeah, where like, I have been trying to sort of undo some of that siloing. I think I did a lot of that early on because it seemed like professionally convenient to mm. um, be able to have these different sides of myself to present in different contexts. Um, but then it also meant, you know, sort of trying to actively hide some of these things from, you know, in certain contexts. And I'm not interested in doing that anymore. And it's, but it's still, it's an ongoing process of trying to, trying to undo that and, you know, to sort of let the, let the freak flag f fly, so to speak, which is not an easy thing to say on the radio, but or any other <laughs> context. But, um, 
Well, I, I would also say I love your nerdy stuff too. So please yeah, keep you. doing it. Um, please keep digging up your front yard and yes. growing mushrooms and posting about it online because that that is also joyful. Um, Adam, if folks want to find you very quickly, how can they do that? And how can they support your music? Because I know it's out there. Yeah. So um, if you search my first and last name, adammatlock.bandcamp.com, uh, I have managed to figure out an index page, which links to all of the, you know, several dozen projects that I'm connected to. Um, and so that'll have, uh, you know, at, at the very least, all of the, the, you know, kind of most recent releases, some of which are free improvisation, some of which are the synth music, some of which are, you know, kind of uh, like other compositions that I've uh, produced and recorded over the years. So, um, but yeah, I, I, that would be the best way. Um, I, awesome. I do a terrible job of keeping up a website, but also you can find me at, at and historic music, uh, uh, on, at, um, on Instagram, uh, which is where I manage to post somewhat regularly, at least about things I'm doing. So. Awesome. Well, Adam Matlock, I want to thank you so much for joining me on Arts Respond. I also want to do a quick plug for your arts writing in the New Haven Independent. You have been writing about the New Haven Symphony Orchestra, talking about historically white institutions. Um, they're doing the work. They're actually they doing the work. And yeah. um, so shout out NHSO, but also shout out your writing because some music writing is impenetrable and wonky and yours is not. So if folks want to read about how the symphony is doing the work, go to Adam Matlock's writing, find his byline on the New Haven Independent, go support his music. Artists need money. They don't do their work for free. Adam, thank you so much for joining me. And uh, if folks want to find out more about what Riot, keep your ears open and your eyes open because I have a feeling that there will be another chance to listen in the next year? <laughs> yeah, at the very least, the recording that um, that we, uh, you know, that was uh, sort of played at the listening party will go up online. Uh, but, uh, but you know, that's that's a placeholder, right? And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to sort of continuing that work and, and doing some revision so that I can do it as initially planned with, with live instruments and awesome. uh, in a live setting, so. Awesome. Well, follow Adam Matlock. Um, his work is good across the board. Adam, thank you so much for joining me on this dreary morning to talk yes. about arts and artists. I appreciate you. Take care. No, thank you for having me. Have a good one.